The last few weeks, we've been in this series called The Practice of Scripture. And we have two weeks left, and this week and next week's kind of part one and part two of this ending. And the last couple of weeks, we've been building this framework to help us in our practice of Scripture. All year, on Sundays, in groups, in other environments, we end up learning the Scriptures together, growing in faith together. Well, this series has been different. We've kind of pressed pause, stepped back, and said, well, what does it mean to practice the Scriptures? What are the Scriptures? How do we learn them and live them really, really well? And this really cool question came out last week. Actually, my phone buzzed in my back pocket at the end of the message because I said, just ask a question. And it was Atelos. If you know Atelos, say hi to him. Atelos, if you're watching online, you know, you can just give a thumbs up there. But he sent this really cool question. And the question fit perfectly into this week. So I didn't answer it uh, before then. And this is what he asked. He said, why are we not made to read the Bible on our own? Why are we not made to read the Bible on our own? I mean, I, I don't know. Are we not made to read the Bible on our own? That's a good question. That's a good question that he brought up. And the Bible's an amazing book, and we teach it and read it all the time. But, and obviously, if we want the Bible to be read widely, embraced widely, and lived widely, like, why not give a Bible to everyone and just let everybody loose? And, you know, you can go in actually any hotel room in North America, pop the top drawer on the side of the bed, and you're going to find a Gideon's Bible. So, and we talked, opening up this series, how popular, like, Bible sales are in North America. So a lot of people do have a Bible. And I wonder, the question is, like, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is how we read the Bible just on our own, just picking it up for the first time in a hotel room? Maybe it's good. But history's shown us that there has been... Uh, some stuff that has gone on when people have just read the Bible without context, without community, not by giving everyone a Bible, but by divorcing it from the bigger picture. And what I want to kind of do today in part one of part two is understand how we're not an island. Like when I pick up the Bible, I'm not in this little circle that just surrounds me, but I'm in a much bigger circle when I pick up the scriptures. Scott McKnight said these words, and I'm going to kind of use his words as a reverse uh, bookends to this week and next week. And he says this, he says, we are called to read the Bible for ourselves, but not entirely on our own. Think about that. We are called to read the Bible for ourselves, but not entirely on our own. I'm going to flip his statement as bookends because next week we're going to just end our series on reading the Bible for ourselves. But this week, I want to make sure we don't read it entirely on our own. And there's, there's, there's an importance to why both those things work together. In the 16th century, it was very popular. What happened uh, around church history is this beautiful big thing called the Reformation. And Martin Luther uh, really felt convicted in his heart to bring some change and correction after reading the scriptures. It's particularly the book of Romans and Galatians within his context, which was the Catholic Church. Well, he was known as a reformer and one who just came after him. His name was John Calvin. And then after that, there was the radical reformers as well. They longed to see the scriptures read by a lot of people. And in the 16th century, John Calvin, on the heels of Martin Luther, he wanted more people to read the Bible. They wanted everybody to read the Bible. And so what did they do to help everyone read the Bible? Something counterintuitive. John Calvin actually wrote another book. He called it the Institutes of Christian Religion, a big four-volume book to help people read another book 
called the Bible. It's interesting. Their desire for the Bible to be in everybody's hands led them to say, well, let's let's help people read the Bible well. Let's give some guidance from the church so every Christian can read it for themselves. So they were kind of torn. They wanted to make sure everyone had access And yet they wanted to also help people see that you're not an island by yourself when you pick up the scriptures. A couple of years ago, I had this like kind of pain in a joint in in, uh, like my lower back. And so I went to go see this physiotherapist and she did something on that joint and helped me out. And then she showed me a few exercises that I could actually do for myself at home. Now, I went to go see this physiotherapist for another reason, because I was having a conversation with my niece way before that. And my niece happens to be a physiotherapist as well. So I was telling her my problem. Like, don't you do that with relatives? Like you find that there's something and then you're like, oh, tell me, oh, your computer was my, 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 like my computer's acting up. Can you fix it? Right. I have a knee problem. Oh, you do that stuff. Can you fix it? Right. So I asked my niece about that and I told her about the problem. She's like, and I told her what I was doing on my own. And she's like, where did you get that info? I said, I don't know. I Googled it. I looked at like doctor.com and they told me that when you have a problem there, this is the stretch you should make. She's like, Uncle Dave, just stop. Stop right now. Stop doing that exercise. You're totally, stop Googling your problems on, on the internet. And so I stopped and she's like, you're going to make your problem worse. So I took her advice and I went to see a real physiotherapist and they helped me out. So what I couldn't do for myself, they helped me do on my own, but with guidance. And, they, and that's a little bit of what we're talking about today. Now I promise next week we're going to let the Bibles loose into every home all over the world. And you can read it as much as you want this week. But this week, I want to make sure we are not just reading it on our own. And here's what I'm getting at. Think about the New Testament. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how it was written and put together. These letters hand-delivered at times to the church of Ephesus or the church of Colossae or the church at Rome. And they were read out loud and they were discussed together and listened to together and applied together with discernment. Well, Paul, when he wrote the massive letter of Romans... He ended up giving it to a ministry colleague of his named Phoebe. Scholars say, believe that Phoebe brought this letter to the Roman church from Paul. And it's very likely that the letter carrier or the one who had responsibility of this would have been prepped by the author to answer questions. Imagine the first time Rome opens up this letter from Paul and reads it. And you don't think if we have questions, you don't think they had questions. And so Paul probably prepped Phoebe with maybe some anticipatory questions to bring clarity to what Paul would have meant so they would hear and understand his letter, which now we know is in the New Testament really well and live it out. And the church over time developed this muscle, what it meant to be a discerning community to help people learn and live well through the scriptures and as we look back in the early churches we look back to how the church grew these documents showed up that showed that the church collectively read through the scriptures together in fact there was an early first or second century document called the didache didache really just means the teaching and it helped the church affirm in their gatherings and give them guidance for how to read these letters which were becoming known as the new testament And what we call this, when we think about what this means, some people call it the great tradition. Now, don't misunderstand tradition for some, what some Catholics call magisterium. It's a different thing. But this idea of the great tradition, really, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, called the living tradition of faith, 
and what some people call orthodoxy. What is Christian orthodoxy? Like, what do Christians believe? And the Greek tradition is what Christ followers believed and lived for centuries. Now, I want to just identify two different words, tradition and traditionalism. They're both different. Tradition, people will say, is the living faith of the dead. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Even as we read the New Testament scriptures and the first apostles are not with us anymore, we have their living faith kind of as we read the, the scriptures. Traditionalism tends to be the dead faith of the living. Here's the difference. Tradition is discovering what people of faith always believed so we can live it out in our day. Traditionalism is taking how they lived it out in their day, making it a carbon copy, and just say, this is how we're going to do it today. And that doesn't always work. See, tradition is different from traditionalism. But every century, the church looked back to Scripture for fresh insight that leaned into the great tradition to come forward into their own day. Augustine did it. Basil did it. Luther did it. Calvin did it. John Wesley did it. We look back so we can come forward into our day and live this out. But how do we read the Bible in this way? How do we make sure that, the, that I don't read the Bible with just a hula hoop around me? It's like, okay, it's just me and the Bible and whatever I think. How do I, how do I make sure I'm not just this island, but that I actually see that I'm inside this bigger picture? And so I, I want to call it this way is the great tradition. But I'm going to use kind of four words to help us understand this. And the first word is the church. When you think about this, the church, like we said, existed before the New Testament was formalized. The church came out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Spirit. And as the church grew and the apostles taught and they lived out this living tradition of faith we talked about a couple of weeks ago, there is this idea that the church was something that these new Christians and then mature Christians were living within. And when they would get a letter, and then down the road, Peter wrote a letter, and then John in his later years, and then they actually formalized this in the New Testament, they understand they were reading this together as a community. Acts chapter 2 says that as the church started to explode in growth, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They didn't just kind of like one person on an island to themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They knew and understood what was taught from the beginning within the church, from these people who were with Jesus and heard from Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that God called these gifted people or gave these gifts to the church in the form of people, right? Apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, shepherd, pastor, to equip God's people for works of service so that every single one of us as part of the church, can grow into maturity and the fullness of Christ. Paul encouraged every church to have an elder or elders to guide the church so no Christ follower would be an island. So no Christ follower would be an island. And the church is more than its leaders. The church is a community, an interpretive community that listens to the scriptures and listens to the spirit and discerns how to respond and how to live. So the church is kind of the first way we understand that we live rooted in something bigger than ourselves. But there was something that the church developed over time according to what they believed. And it's called this, another C word. It's called creeds. Over time, the church affirmed its core beliefs in these things called creeds. In fact, the word creed, all it means is I believe. 
It's really simple. I believe. That's what the word creed means, or we believe. And there was two really popular creeds in the fourth century called the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. But do you know that there's been over 200 creeds written throughout church history as the church grew, grew in, in Egypt, as the church popped up in Asia, as the church popped up in Africa, as the church popped up in different parts of the world? They wanted to make sure that they were teaching and living out the, the, the living tradition of faith, and they would express themselves in their own language to help their community stay rooted in something bigger than themselves. And that's how these first popular creeds, the bigger creeds, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nician Creed came together. It helped them guide them to stay true to what they knew from the beginning, even as generations would die and pass away. And it helped actually guide how the New Testament was put together. They, they looked at these creeds and they, thought, they, they realized this is what the church has been teaching and it guided them. Now you look at the creed or I look at the creed, you're not going to find marriage advice. You're not going to find like wisdom for how to treat your boss tomorrow. Uh, it's not going to tell you how to, how to like use your money. And uh, it, won't, it won't even, creeds don't even tell us the, some of the great teachings of Jesus like love your neighbor. But what creeds do is it's the foundation of our core beliefs. Who is God? Who is Jesus? Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the church? What's, what are we anticipating into eternity? And you know the New Testament has little samples of creeds? When Paul writes the Philippian church, he starts in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Jesus, who was equal with God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took on the form of a human and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know that the early church used to repeat that hymn, that, that saying, often because it helped root them in, in who they were? You know, when Paul writes to the Colossian church in chapter 1, verse 15, he starts saying this. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that all the fullness of God rests in him, and that through him and in him all things were created. And Paul is, it, it, scholars believe that, that that little phrase in, in Colossians chapter 1 is like a creed, what the church believed, and it helped them and understood that they don't just like interpret what they see as an island. It's bigger than themselves. And so these creeds came out of Scripture, and ironically, these creeds helped them stay connected to Scriptures as generations came and future generations to stay connected like to the early church. Here's another thing that helps us understand we're not just an island. It's this thing we do particularly live once a month or on screens. We've been taking communion right? Some people call it the Holy Supper. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. Some people call it the Eucharist. Uh, we call it communion. And it's this practice that Jesus calls us to, to ground us in the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Christ. And our community, our church, is actually built around the idea that we break bread together as followers of Jesus. Paul tells the Corinthian church, hey, I heard this from Jesus himself, and he instructed us and when we come together, we break bread because Christ's body was broken and we pour wine as his blood was poured out. And we do this together every time we meet. And if you just read through the New Testament, and you can, if you can, I guess you can do this online these days, just, just look for how often the New Testament mentions bread and wine and breaking bread and giving thanks and eating. It's something that they did before we called before we understood even what the scriptures were. And there's an amazing story. It's in Luke chapter 24. Jesus has already risen from the dead. And he meets up with these two guys walking back home. They're distraught because they think Jesus is dead. They haven't really grasped this news. They haven't even heard the news that he's alive. And he catches up with them and he's walking with them back to their hometown. And 
it tells us that something incredible happens, that Jesus opens up the Old Testament scriptures to them, and he tells them about him. And then it says that these, these two people invited Jesus back to their house and said, hey, you want to come and hang out with us? And they broke bread together. And it says that as Jesus broke bread, some, something extraordinary happened. But as Luke tells us the story, he tells us two things. These people said this about Jesus. They said to the disciples, they said, didn't it burn? Didn't our hearts burn when he opened up the scriptures? In other words, something happened when Jesus opened up the scriptures to us. But then they said, it's like he was made known to us when he broke the bread. He was made known to us in the breaking of the bread. That's what they said about Jesus breaking bread with them in their home. And it's amazing when you think back to this story. Here's Jesus, post-resurrection, helping these people understand how the scriptures come alive when they're with the ongoing practice of communion. Somehow, somehow, the scriptures and communion have the same goal, making Jesus known. That's the goal when we take communion, that's the goal when we open up scriptures. And Jesus in this story shows us how they work together. And it's, it's something that keeps us connected and helps us understand that we read scripture not entirely on our own, but even within the practices that we have as a church. And here's, here's, the last, here's this last idea. And uh, it's communal worship. I had to get a C in there just to kind of like get this going. But, but it is. It's communal. And, and it's partly our worship. And here's, here's, this is why. Because the church for centuries has listened to Scripture in community. The first century church didn't have a Bible to open. In fact, only like centuries and centuries later, even after the Bible was put together, did people actually get a Bible after the printing press. But so the church for centuries listened to the scriptures being spoken in communal worship. Not just in the songs they sang or we sing, but in every act of us meeting together, the scriptures become central. But it's part of our worship. It's not just something you go and do at home. It's something we do together. So when Paul writes to the Ephesian church, he tells them, he says that to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He doesn't just say go home and recite it. To one another, speak to one another. So when we sang today or even you sang at home, we understand that we're actually not, we're singing to God, we're worshiping, but we're singing to each other. We're speaking God's word to each other. When we opened up the scriptures today, uh, even before I spoke, we're, we're sharing that with each other. I love what Paul tells the Colossian church, almost the same thing. He says, let the message of Jesus dwell among you richly. Let it be like just so much, it be so immersed in the message of Jesus. And then he says the same thing to this church. He says, speak to one another with this message or with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So the scripture became part of the church's earliest practice of worship, the earliest practice of worship. The scripture, or initially the living tradition of faith, was spoken, was heard, was taught, was prayed, was discerned, was processed. And so before we ever actually have this idea that we read a Bible on our own, the church for centuries read the Bible in community, read the Bible in worship, and listened to the scriptures. About a year and a half ago or two, 
it seems like we, we shifted into this thing, even at Westside, that ev- almost every Sunday in our welcome, we open up with some piece of scripture, Old Testament, Psalm, New Testament. Even be- before we start singing, before we do anything else, we just, we're, we're trying to set this pace that the scriptures become part of who we are and part of our communal worship. So we start with scripture, we worship with scripture, we pray with scripture. Today, Matt prayed out of Ephesians 1 as we prayed. He, he prayed through the, with the scriptures. Last week when we had an in-person gathering and we shared the content online as well, people prayed through Psalm 84 and 85. Most mornings on our morning prayer on Facebook Live, we don't just say our words. We actually read through readings that are biblical readings, and then we read through the the text so we can pray with the Scripture. So even when we gather together, we start with Scripture, worship with Scripture, pray with Scripture, and we teach through Scripture. Every week we teach through Scripture. And we do it together. A couple of years ago, there was a a guy who was discerning um, a step in his faith. And uh, he, as a kid, really young kid, got baptized and then came to faith in a fresh way later in his life. And he was wondering, should I get baptized again? And, and uh, he had said, you know, I think I was 10 or 11. I don't really remember anything. I didn't get baptized really out of my own real discernment. And, and we didn't, we, we're not in the, in the practice of baptizing people again, you know. Um, but we said, hey, let's pray about it, let's discern, let's think, you know, think through. And, and I remember he called me one week, and he's, and, or he sent me a note, and he's like, Dave, I've, we've, I've decided to, to get baptized. And I'm like, well, what's led you to this decision? He says, last Sunday, and I was waiting, like, when you said, you know, last Sunday when you said, or when you preached, or when you, and he didn't say any of that. He's like, last Sunday when the scripture was read in worship, uh, I just, I, I understood in that moment that I had to make my faith real in public. And it was awesome. It wasn't because a teacher said it at that moment. It was, we read this scripture halfway through our gathering in worship. And I just, I know the Holy Spirit was now convicting me and prompting me that I need to make this next step. That was a beautiful example of why in communal worship we read the scriptures. And so think about those four words, the church, the creeds, communion, communal worship. All of those come out of Scripture today, and yet all of those help us read the Scripture today. You notice how they work in tandem? That we're not just an island on our own? They all help us read the Scripture, so we're not reading it entirely on our own. And yet, as we read the Scripture, we read about these elements in our own faith. Scott McKnight said this, and, and I'll kind of like... Help us understand this because no matter that I just listed these four things, we still want to keep the scripture primary. It's not these four things that are primary. These four things just give us a little bit of a window that I'm not an island. You're not an island. But to help us keep the scripture primary, I like what Scott McKnight says. He says, we look to the the great tradition with profound respect for our past without giving it full authority. Did you catch that? We look to the great tradition or some of these things with profound respect for our past without giving it final authority. The scriptures are our final authority. But we look to some of these things to help us, guide us. Now, here's, this is a cool thing. Think about it this way. Too much respect of the past leads to traditionalism. Too little respect of the past leads us to be completely disconnected from historic Christianity. You get the difference? Too much respect, 
traditionalism. Too little respect, completely disconnected. But just enough respect, this is what happens. The timeless message of the gospel becomes timely in our own time. I should say that again because it's a little bit of a tongue twister. The timeless message of the gospel becomes timely in our time. We don't want to live out our faith exactly in the same way that Luther or Augustine did, but we want the same message to live today in us so we can live out the message today. You, You see the difference? So the timeless message of the gospel becomes timely in our time. And so what do we do? We stay rooted with the help of tradition without falling into the trap of traditionalism. So this is, this is, I'll say these, these last two words, and you can even see it on the screen. It roots us and it renews us. It roots us and it renews us. So it roots us to what's timeless. It roots us to what's timeless, to what the church has always believed from the early centuries. But then, as we get into Scripture, it renews us to live out that faith in fresh ways today. Not away from it, not apart from it, not disconnected from it, but the Scriptures renew us. And that's really what most of the church did in every century. That's what led Martin Luther and John Calvin to look back to the Scriptures and say, what is it that is who we are and how are we meant to live it today because maybe we've gone off and so the scriptures helps us renew with fresh lens but the great tradition roots us the scriptures then renew us to come forward and it's interesting i love this because the great tradition doesn't take us away from scripture it always brings us back to scripture but then when we look to the scripture in our day in our age we're refreshed we come forward So that timeless message becomes timely for you and for me and for our generation. And so this simple way to wrap up today is you and I, we can definitely read the Bible for ourselves. Go read it this week. Read as much as you want. Read 10 hours of the Bible this week. That's fine. In fact, we're going to talk about that next week in how we read the Bible for ourselves. But we should never read it entirely on our own. It was never meant to be read entirely on our own. We're not an island by ourselves. In fact, Westside is not even an island by itself. But we live within the beauty of the church over the centuries. And the scripture, that roots us. And then the scriptures refreshes us and renews us to live that out today. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful. We're so grateful. I, I'm grateful that I am like historic faith doesn't rely on David Manifold. I'm so grateful that historic faith does not rely on West Side alone. I'm grateful that we stand inside a large circle, God, that just roots us back to the cross, the resurrection, that roots us back to the apostles' teaching, their interaction with your son Jesus as he walked this earth. Oh, God, that it roots us back to the early teachings of the church, the living tradition of faith that transformed people and impacted cities and regions. God, we're so grateful that by the work of your spirit and the discernment of your spirit through the church, God, we just see the beauty of this living tradition of faith over the years, over centuries. So God, help us to be those kind of people who are first transformed by Christ. 
then as we look back, rooted in the heartbeat of your church, refresh us as we open the scriptures to live the timeless message of the gospel of your kingdom in a timely way today, God. Oh God, we long for that. We long for that kind of rootedness and we long for that kind of renewal. God, may, we, may you shape us and transform us into a people that truly carries with us the heartbeat of the gospel in such a way that we can spread it to those around us and that we grow in it every single day. God, as we open up the scriptures this week, even on our own, remind us that we're not an island, that we're rooted in you and in the work of Christ and how, you've, how you shaped your church. In your name we pray, amen.